come before you. We ask that you bless this evening and as we look at your word, that you guide and lead. And Lord, we just thank you for each individual that's here and even those that aren't here, Lord. We ask for the protection on, on many that are, in, that are suffering through this cold weather and that you will guide and protect them. And we just ask for a study to be good. In your son's name, amen. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from destruction? Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy? Who satisfies your mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles? The Lord executes righteousness and judgment for all that are opposed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us for our, to our iniquities. And for as, high as, for as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that feed, fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as the flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto his children's children. Too much to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his covenants to do them, the Lord has prepared his throne in the heavens and the kingdom rules and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, ye his saints, and excel in strength, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearken unto the voice of, the, of his word. Bless you the Lord, all you his host, you ministers of his, that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So we're going to look at this. We left off at verse 14. For he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as the flower of the field, so he flourishes. And he just got done talking about how God is removed, that God is higher higher than, than the earth and his mercy to those that fear him. He separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. And I always loved that statement. He separates our sin as infinite distance. Okay. How my granddaughter can't understand how God don't remember our sins. I said, as far as the east is from the west, and he, she said, how can he do that? I said, because he's God. By divine fiat. He says that he says that he doesn't, so he doesn't. Just as we do. I mean, it has been said that humans remember everything they see, hear, smell, and do. But you know, we forget an awful lot of things. But technically, it's locked into our brain. And if we really wanted to think about it, we we could be able to remember the things that we don't remember and we even even though we may not be able to remember it now have you ever had those times where you're struggling real hard to think of something and when you stop trying to remember what it is an hour later all of a sudden oh that's what I wanted it's way too late to tell anybody but it's like oh yes God has just declared by divine fiat and a fiat is a decision by divine fiat he has declared that he will not remember our sins that are placed under the blood of Christ he is everywhere present, but there's some place that he has said, I won't remember 
this. And more than not remember it, he's declaring that he's not going to hold it against us. He separated it. It's been covered under the blood, so he does not bring it to our charge. And that's important for us to understand that he can say, I'm not going to. Technically, he remembers, I'm sure, but he does not hold it against us. The mercy seat or the beamer seat? Well, either one. At the beamer seat, when Christians stand before God, he is just judging the works that we, he let us, that he did through, that we let him do through us. And all of our works will be burnt up and he will reward us from what he did in our life. That's all that happens at the bema seat. It's a rewards judgment. Uh, the bema is a place where we're rewarded. The great white throne judgment, Christians will not stand in front of that because we are already perfect at that time. We have our glorified bodies. And at that seat, he still isn't going to bring up their sins because the only sin that sends them to hell is that they have rejected Jesus. That's the unforgivable sin that will send them to hell. And this is why when Christians say, I'm afraid I've committed the unforgivable sin. No, you've accepted Jesus Christ. You cannot commit the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. When they stand before Jesus, before Jesus and the Lord at the white throne judgment, it's, they're standing there because they have rejected Jesus. They are guilty and will be going to hell. And I believe they're going to be shown at that point every time they rejected Jesus at that point, not the sins that are piling up, because Jesus paid for sin. They've rejected Jesus, they're headed to hell, and he's going to show them, you had this opportunity to accept me, you had this opportunity to accept me, you had this opportunity to accept me, and you rejected me, goodbye. Now, whether there's levels of sin, you know, payment for the sin that, that you didn't allow Jesus to forgive you, I'm not going to get into, but because there's people that think that's true and some that don't, and I'm not really considered that. All I know is that hell is a very awful place from the description of the Bible. It doesn't really talk about levels of hell, but people want to say, well, because God is so just, there'll be levels of hell, and there may or may not be. But I really believe that they're going to hell simply because they rejected Jesus Christ, so I'm not so sure that there's levels of hell. Their sin is forgiven. Just as everybody else is, it's that they reject Jesus. And you cannot walk into heaven in your own righteousness. You need the righteousness of Christ. So those are the, those are the things, and that's how Jesus, God can say, I forget it, just because he's choosing not. I, think, I really do think it's more that he's not holding it against us. He has chosen to ignore it when it's time to deal with us than, forgotten, than, than technically forgotten. Uh, but he has put it under the blood, and when it's under the blood, there's a whole other area of doctrine. He puts the sin under the blood, and he no longer digs, digs it up. Uh, but you're right, and she's right too. God, God doesn't forget anything. He knows all things, but he's choosing not to deal with those. At the very least, he's choosing not to hold it at, to our account, or he has just chosen to forget it. And we do the same thing too. If we want to forget something, we don't remember it. We just don't think about it. Most people, when they have trouble with forgiveness... They choose to remember things that they shouldn't be remembering. Everything. And, they, and they, keep re, they keep stirring it up and stirring the pot up, and they remember those areas really well. And I know people with very bad memories about what they ate yesterday but can tell you exactly, or at least exactly from their point of view, what happened 20, 30 years ago that they're still angry about and have not 
forgiven because it's it's stirred up all the time in their minds. So, but that's how it that's how it happens as far as God not not turning you know not holding it against us. So, but as we went on, he says, for he knows our frames and remembers that we are but dust. You know, most of us as humans forget that we're dust. That, we, that God created us from the dust of the world. And you know, it's kind of amazing because science tells us we're worth, what, what is it, 87 cents worth of chemicals? You know, it's, you know, it's not, a whole, not even a whole lot of value in what, we're, what we have in our life. You know? and with inflation, it's, it might be, it's still less than $10 worth of chemicals. You know, it's, yeah, so, but God remembers that all he had to do was just blow on us a little bit and we would be, we would be done. Uh, all he's got to do is stop even thinking about this world and holding it together, and it would totally explode because it has, it has a lot of laws that are violated in holding together an atom. An atom should not hold together when you look at it. The nucleus is like, proton, like charges sticking together with each other. And if you've ever played with magnets with light char, like charges, you can't push them together. They, they, they repel against each other. Mm -hmm. It's circled by electrons that should be imploding into the protons by the, by the laws of, of science because the opposites would draw each other. So it's kind of an amazing thing that, a pro, that an atom even holds together. And why? Because God it tells us that Jesus holds everything together in this world. He's that charge that they talk about, the, the atomic charge that holds everything, glue that holds everything together, and they can't find what that is because it's God himself holding it together. And he remembers that we are nothing but dust. And then he goes on even further and says, for his days are like grass as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. Because he's getting ready to go on about, he's going to compare our short time as the field of the grass to God's everlasting place. And we, and we see this. Man comes and goes. Now, during our lifetime, we tend to think, you know, this is, you know, especially if you live a long life, I've lived a long life, I know things. I've done things. But, you know, some people that are even very well-known, very famous in their lifetime, are not even known in the next generation. Give them three or four generations and only very little of their lifetime might be known if they were very famous. And a thousand, two thousand years later, and it's how many people do we really know in history? You know, unless you're a real history buff, you only know a handful of people from, from the past uh, and you don't know much about them. And it's kind of amazing, even in our country, We've got our, our founding fathers that helped build this country. And very little is known about their lifetime when you really look at them. And we look at even in the scriptures. And we've talked about this before. Abraham mentioned every book of the Bible just about. And we know, what is it, six or seven stories out of his, life, that is, out of his entire life are mentioned in the scriptures. And he's everywhere in the Bible. He's mentioned everywhere in the Bible. It just goes to show we're like grass. We fade away and then nobody remembers. And many people that we know will, will fade away after a few generations. You, know, you might talk about them to your kids if they were really special. But after, after that, these people that were really important in your life and even your family, nobody knows them. Nobody talks about them. 
Nobody talks about, you know, Uncle Edward, who was the, the life of the parties, you know, and he, he passes away, and then you pass away, and nobody ever knows who he is anymore. Because he didn't do anything really special. He was, he was entertaining during his lifetime, but you, he, you move on and you forget. And this is what God is saying. I, he remembers that our life is short. And when you compare it to him, he's eternal. Can you imagine how short our life seems to God? Just a blip in the screen. <laughs> and we, we showed up and we're gone. We showed up and we're gone. And yet we as humans tend to have this feeling like we are the center of the world. We are the most important thing that has ever existed in this world. Especially if we've done anything of any importance. You know, we're, we're, we're really special. People should be remembering us forever. And then we're just one of those names that have come and gone. Nobody, nobody knows who you are. They do a little genealogy on you, you know, on your family tree, and you're going, well, I, I never heard of this person or this person or this person or this person. And, and the further back you go, the less likely you are to have ever heard of them. Maybe some of them you don't. And some of, you don't, some of them you don't want to know about. Some of them you probably should remember because of the stuff they have done. But God knows that our lives are basically insignificant. But you know what? He remembers the good that we do. And he is going to reward that in heaven. Uh, what we have done is going to be rewarded, especially the things that we don't realize that we've done good. And that's why I say, you know, I've told you all this before. I love the song, Thank You. You know, dreamed I went to heaven, you were there with me. And all these people come up to the pastor and say, thank you. And the things they're thanking him for is the little things. You know, not even, not even the days he stood up on the platform preaching a gr the greatest message he's ever preached. That wasn't necessarily what was remembered. It was the, the kind, tender, loving things done. The, the, the gifts done that didn't seem to be amount to, amount to anything. God's going to say, thank you. Thank you for your obedience in this area, and we're going to be rewarded. Uh, one, of the, one of the pastors, and I believe it was Greg Glory, said at the Bema seat, God is looking for what he can reward us for, not what he can take away from us. His graciousness and his mercy is such that he wants to reward us. He's, he's looking at our life and saying, is there any place that I can give any small reward for? He's not looking at saying, oh, how much can I take away from him? I want to get, you know, that's not our God. Our God is loving, he is merciful, he is gracious. At the Bema seat, he's looking for that opportunity to say, is there anything that they've done in my life that I can give them a reward for? Now, I do believe in one sense he'll show us how much more we could have had if we had been obedient. But his, his main goal is to show us, here is what, this is what you did get to keep. I am so proud of what you have done. We don't fully understand the compassion and love of God. This is why we need to understand grace. And grace is getting everything we don't deserve. And if we truly start understanding grace that he has for us, we are going to be more gracious and loving to other people. When somebody is very legalistic and abusive to other people, they don't understand God's grace and love in the first place. Because if they did, and they realized that they didn't deserve it, they would, be, they would be ready to show other people that same love and grace. 
And it's hard. It's hard because we don't understand it. And I'm fully convinced that most people don't understand God's grace and his love. Because if we do, we would really be showing it to others. Because we would understand we don't deserve anything that we get. It's all grace. Everything in our life is grace. Everything in our life is God's love. And God remembers that we're nothing. He remembers that we are just a blip on the screen of time. And he still wants to remember. This is what's beautiful about this. God does not forget. And one of the things I've noticed as I'm getting older, and I'm still the youngest person in this room today, is how fast time seems to run around as you look over time. And it's just amazing to me that this last year, actually the last four years that I've been here has gone by so fast. It doesn't seem at all like it's been four years. This last year doesn't even seem like it's been a year. It's only seemed like a month or two, and it's over already. And it only seems to speed up from this point on. And God, you know, imagine it from God's perspective. He's been around forever, literally forever. From the beginning of time through now, he's been around Imagine that when he looks at time, the entire span of time, almost 6,000 years, to him is just a blink of the eye because of, how, because of how long he's been around. And he still cares about us in our time, in our, t- in our position. It says, for the wind passes over and it is gone, and the place there shall, shall know it no more. Our entire life, wind blesses, blows by, it's gone. Uh, we... And I, I love it here in the desert because we really have a great example of this. You know, you get a little bit of rain, the flowers come up, and by the end of the day, they're gone. Yeah. Boy, you, you, know. see them, you see different ones. And they're beautiful and all of this, you know, but they pop up and they're gone. Sometimes in 24 hours they're gone, but never, never more than a week around here that you're going to see any flowers. But God understands that. They come and they go. And he understands that it's so quick. And he's the one that gives us that beauty. And basically he's saying, You're like, we are like those flowers. We spring up. He gives us beauty and adornment. He allows us to be used. And then we're gone. And after we're gone, we'll be lucky to be known and remembered. Certain people are going to be remembered a little longer than others because they've done, God has used them in a little deeper way. You know, we think about people like Billy Sunday, D.L. Moody, uh, the Wesley brothers, Charles and John, we think about uh, you know, our founding fathers, certain kings, people who had a real mark on history are known, but even that is not very much of their life really known unless you dig into their life and, and make it a study of it. And this is what God's saying. Come and gone. But verse 17 says, but. And whenever you see the, but, the word but, you, you know something is changing. Or you see the word therefore, you want to figure out why it's there, <laughs> what it's there for. And here, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to them that fear him and his, and his righteousness unto children's children. God's mercy is from everlasting and his mercy that he puts on us to the children's children. Now, this does not mean they just automatically get his righteousness. But when you raise your kids in the knowledge and nurture of the Lord, 
there is a very strong tendency for those children to walk after God. It very much is true. It's not an absolute. In Proverbs it says, train up your children in the way you should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We do the best we can raising them up in God, showing them the importance of his word, showing them the importance of the church, showing them the importance of, of service. Uh, when I was growing up, my dad would go door knocking, and there would be three children with him because he couldn't just leave us you know, alone. And sometimes we'd be with other members of the door knocking team, but we went out. He went out door knocking. We went out door knocking. We went out uh, in what was called blitzes for the church, and we went out on, on street evangelism with them. So I've been doing this stuff all my life because we went with my dad to do these things. Now, that had a great impact on me because now I've grown to love God as well. We did the same thing with our kids. We took them to different things and, and had them be part of what was going on. And for the most part, our kids are serving God. We show them that it's real. Children are looking for something that is real. And I've worked with kids most of my life before, you know, until recently. And, you know, I could tell you the stories they, they would want to tell you about their parents. You know, kids tell what's going on in their homes, and you, sometimes more than you wanted to know. I could have told you what some of the pastors' lives were like, uh, what their home lives were like, because I had pastors' children in my Sunday school. Now, I'd hear all about how dad's preaching this and teaching this, but not living it at home. I'd hear, you know, and then you'd hear the other side too, where dad was living what he preached. But you know, when you heard those things, it was really sad because uh, when you would hear those negative things from those kids, you knew one thing about those kids. They would probably walk away from God as they got older because they did not see something real at home. They didn't see reality. They didn't see Christianity. They saw a face and a mask in the church, and then they saw something totally different at home. And this is why I tell all parents, especially, your kids need to see you in the Bible. They need to see you praying. They need to see you that church isn't a question on whether I'm going. I am going. Then they go, okay. They may not be perfect, but they are living this life right. And sometimes it's because you know, they, they haven't seen their parents do this because the parents want that time off, especially mothers. You know, mothers are so busy raising their kids, a lot of times you'll hear that I, I did my devotions before the kids got up or after they went to bed. And I'm, I'm really grateful that the mothers did that, but they had one major problem. The kids never saw them do it. And that has an impact on the kids. Now, that doesn't mean it's totally worth it. I mean, if they live a Christian life in front of their kids, it'll be overcome. But I remember often going to my dad, and what was he doing? Studying the Word praying. Those are the things I remember. And it made an impact. Now, I was already saved and I was already on my way as, as to following God myself, but I remember when he got saved, that's what happened. We need to have that reality. They need to see that something's changed. Now, if you're older and your kids have gone the wrong way, then you just keep praying for them and you show them that your lifestyle is godly as, as best you can when they're not around and lift them up before God. And hopefully they will eventually come around. It's a little harder there because they didn't see it right going, growing up, but they'll eventually get, get hold of the fact that you have something real. Doesn't mean they're going to accept it, but they're going to say, well, 
there's a change, there's, there's a difference. But God gives everlasting mercy. When he gives us the mercy, it's from forever. This is one of the things when people say, well, I think you can lose your salvation. You don't understand God's love and his grace and his mercy. Once he gives you everlasting life because you asked for it, you've got it. It's going to be there. Now, did you get it is the big question. Did you truly believe? Did you put all of your trust in Jesus? And are you leaning on him? Are you leaning on God? That's where this importance is. Too many people have grown up, especially in America, and they say these magic words called the sinner's prayer, and they believe they're saved even though they didn't mean the words. They just said the words. They, they wanted to purchase fire insurance just in case. Just in case that what you told me is true, I'm going to say these words and, and never have a change of heart. They're not saved. They never were saved. Jesus talked about the sower of the seeds, and only one of the four grounds that he talked about was a Christian. One never even had anything. The one that landed on the hard soil and got taken away never had any response. Two of them had some response but did not, was not real. They did not take root. You had the one in the, in the, in the rocks that never took, took root, and you got the other one that got choked out because of the cares of this world. We need to be careful. We need to show. We need to be developing disciples. And this is the important thing. Discipleship is important. Once somebody gets saved, they need to be taught. This is one of the reasons I've got a book with it. If somebody comes in and says, you know, hey, I said a prayer, or, or even if we got it from the email, on email from, the, from outside saying, you know, when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart, if I could get hold of their email, I'll mail them a, a booklet to, to go through. But it's just a simple booklet on how to get started with God. And we need anything to help people get started. Help them get into the Word of God. Help them memorize. Help them find a church. Very important things to do is to get yourself grounded. Because when trials come, we need that grounding, that grounding in God's Word. We need to be memorizing Scripture. We need to have things that help us get through trials. And this next year, I want to start working even with the church and encourage people, memorize Scriptures and work on, on monthly Scriptures, you know, just to help people learn. Well, well, we'll pick verses that are very important to memorize so that they have part of your life. So it's, I think the verses we pick are going to be helping people. They're important verses. I think people can help remember them. When something happens in your life or something's going on in your life, you need verses to be able to, to come back with. And they're important to, they're important to remember and important to learn. We go on through verse 18. To such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. God is looking at people that are going to let him teach them and that they will at least be cognizant of his commandments. And this is why I mentioned, you know, it's important for us to learn verses and because those are our strength when things are happening. When, we're, when we are suffering, we need to have a verse that says, all, for all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. Because when we're in the middle of suffering, if we can remember that verse and we truly believe it, we grab hold of that and say, God, I don't understand it, but you've promised. And there's a school of thought that says that when we pray to God, we should re give back his promises to him. And I understand what they're saying. I don't remind God of what he has told them. You know, well, he knows, but he, God is kind of an interesting character when you look at, at the scriptures. 
know, he does seem to want to be reminded about some of what he does. He does seem to want us to say, God, you've said. And I've done that. I guess I have done that because when things are going bad, I'm going, God, I don't understand it. But you have promised all things work together for good. God, I don't understand why this is happening. But you have said, rejoice in, all, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of Christ Jesus concerning you. God, you've said, you know, I'm to provide myself as a sacrifice. So I guess in one sense I do, just not as much as some of these places, you know, people try to, to talk, uh, talk about it. But I think it is important that, God, I, you've said this, so I'm holding on to the promise that you've given me. God, you have said to test you and see if you're true by giving you my tithes and offerings, so here I'm going to. Now, I, have, I just do it now. I don't really pray that anymore because I've done it so long that I just do it. But, you know, the next step is when God says, take things deeper. Are you ready to go deeper than you've been going? Some, and, you know, that's where the challenge comes in for those who have been walking with God for a while when God says, okay, you've been doing okay at loving these people. Are you ready to take it to the next step? Are you ready to love these people who are very, very hard to love? Are you willing to forgive like I forgive as you give somebody to, that hurts you in a pretty big way and you have to forgive them? might even be our kids sometimes you know our kids doing things that hurt us or that are rejecting what we're trying to show them and how we've changed our lives and they're going nope I don't want to believe it I don't you know I know who you were I know I know who you are and who you were don't even try to tell me you've changed the world does not accept change the sad thing though is when Christians don't allow other people to change we need to stop remembering the past on everybody and, and giving forgiveness and letting them live according to the new creation that God's making them. And so many times Christians will throw it in their face. Well, yeah, well, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. And to do agree, I understand what they're saying, but at the same time, God can do miraculous things. When we first got saved, how would we have liked somebody coming along and saying, well, I'll believe you're saved when you prove it. And yet we will do this all the time to, to other people who say that God's doing a work in their life. And I'm not saying we just automatically believe that everything they've done, but, you know, we go, praise God, I'm, I, I'm glad. And then watch and see if it's true. I've had, especially when I first started here, I had about two people that were trying to tell me everything that, all these people, everybody's problems in the church, and it's like, uh, I don't need to know it. This is their chance to have a new start with nobody knowing anything that they've done in the past. And if they're going to be not deserving of that fresh start, then God will show that as well. Why? Because we don't need to know. We're told not to know anybody after the flesh in the first place. We want to know who they are spiritually and how God is blessing them. So that when they change, we can go, good job. I am glad to see that God is growing you. And you know, I've been watching people grow so much in this church. It's amazing to watch how people have fallen in love with God's word, falling more and more in love with God, making the changes, growing in, in him, and just being able to enjoy watching that happen. Knowing that I'm just a small part of it, you know, I have the easy part. I just get to teach. <laughs> I get to tell people what God tells them they're supposed to do and then, watch, and then, then hope that they do what their God tells them to do. My job is easy. God's job is the hard part. He has to change them. <laughs> but he's fully capable of doing that. And the fun part is watching these lives change. And looking at our own lives, as we look back over our lives and we see this is all where God has changed me. And if God can change me, he can change anybody. 
because I'm very stubborn. I am very stubborn. God had to hit me over the head with a two-by-four most of the time before, for several times before I would pay attention. I've gotten better over the years. I'm not quite as stubborn as I used to be, but God used to have to work real hard and real long to get hold of me. Yes, I'm still stubborn. I'm just not as stubborn. Oh, you, oh, you mockers. Verse 19. The Lord has prepared his, thrones in the, his throne in the heavens and the earth rule, and his kingdom rules over all. I love this one. God is sovereign. He is in charge. He rules. We need to always remember this, that God is the one who's in charge. And I've said this before, and it's an old joke, but in theology you learn, they say the first thing you learn is that there's one God and that you're not God. And we all need to keep that in mind. We are not God. We're not God in our own life. We're not God in our own environment. We are subject to him. Now, many think that they're God in their own environment. Unfortunately, many Christians think that they're God in their own world. And it's kind of interesting when the world thinks that they're God in their own world, but that's who they are. That's, that's part of being the world. But when we bring that, bring that into Christianity and say, I'm in charge, we're not. God is in charge. In uh, the prophet was sent into the potter's house and he made the, the potter made the bowl and then destroyed it. And God says, that's me, I'm the potter. I can make, I can destroy. I can change what I'm making. I can change my mind in the middle of what I'm making and make something totally different. Mm-hmm. And we need to keep that in mind. God is sovereign. He does what he chooses. And this is why when, men, when people think about the whole issue of election and, and, uh, and free will, they have a lot of problem with it. Predetermination, they have problems with. And I have some problem with it myself. It's hard to understand. God teaches it. And yet, it's hard for us to understand, how can it be true? He's God. <laughs> He's God and can do what he wants. Now, he does give us a free will. Now, how free will and, and, and being uh, predetermined in election fall into, into, into comparison? I have no idea. I've been studying it off and on for over 40 years, and I still don't know how both can be true. The only thing I can tell you is the Bible teaches both. And I'll accept one very important fact. God is a whole lot smarter than me, and he can figure it out. (laughs) He can figure out how both can be true. I don't need to figure it out. All I'm going to do is teach people and say, choose God. And if they choose God, I'm going to have to assume that God predestined them to be chosen. If they don't, then they were predestined not to choose it. Now, whether that means that God knew what the choice was or or that he has influenced the decision, I don't know, don't care, because I'm going to preach and he's going to do the work. And that's all I can do. God teaches both, and I just have to be able to accept that he knows how to make them both true. And we need to be careful because he is sovereign. Because if we go too far the other way and say, well, God knew what I was going to choose, so therefore he bent his will, then I'm denying the sovereignty of God and saying he's subject to man's decisions, and that's not true in any way, shape, or form. 
Because I used to be somebody who just believed, well, God just knew the decision and he decided, he predestined according to what the decision was. And that might be part of his predestination, but it does take away from his sovereignty. Because if he's bending my will to, if he's bending his will to man, then he's no longer sovereign. Man is sovereign, and that's not true. So we have to be careful how we go, how, we, how far we go into any of that. But the one thing I do know is if somebody asks and accepts Jesus Christ in his, in his heart, God did say, whosoever will, will be saved. Which means that they were predestined no matter what. <laughs> okay, now how that works, again, I know that God is a whole lot smarter than me. He's, he knows more, he acts more, and so I will say that I'm going to preach and whosoever will, will get saved. And, but God is in charge, and we've got to remember he's in charge. When everything in our world seems to be going wrong, we look at God and say, God, you're in charge, you promised, it's, you promised that it'll be for good, I don't know how, but you've promised, and you are in charge. When we're looking at our future and it looks bleak, and we don't understand it. God is in charge. He has promised to give us the grace that it takes to go through whatever we have to go through. He's going to provide us with what we need. There, you know, there is no temptation overtaken us, but such as common to man. But God is faithful who will provide a way of escape. He's always there. He's always go holding our hand. The old poem, Footsteps in the Sand, where the guy looks back and there's one sense. And he goes, you said you'd never leave me. He goes, those are the times I carried you. Now, we don't know how close we are to God and how important he is to us. We just need to trust him. Even when everything looks like it's wrong, we trust him. And usually, if you think back over your life, those times when you thought everything was wrong and you, and you did trust him, when you look back, you find out those were some of the sweetest times in your life with God. They were hard at the time, but you look back and he taught something very precious out of that period of time. He really was able to show you his love and his grace. And when we're in the middle of it, it's no fun. Job is a great example. When he was in the middle of all that trial, it was no fun in there. And he griped and complained a bit. He, he goes, God, I don't understand. I believe that, you know, you honor you, that when you're righteous, you're going to be rewarded. But yet you look at the very end of his life, God gave him back twice on everything that he lost. Everything he lost was doubled. And I heard a pastor teach just the other day, and I never even thought about it, but even his kids were doubled because he got to take them into heaven. So he still had twice the number of kids that he started with when he, when he got to the end of his life because he lost the first set and the second set was gone, but he still ended up with two sets in heaven. So he still had double Everything in his life was doubled. You know, all of his reward, all of his wealth was returned to him. He was blessed. We don't know what God has in store for us. All we can do is say, God, you are faithful. I'm your child. You are not going to let me wallow in nothingness forever. Most of us wallow in nothing because we choose that lifestyle and choose not to honor God when he gives us the trials. And we, and we just go, God, I'm, just, I'm not going to accept it. Yeah. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've heard somebody who just won't accept the hardships that they have are from God and always fight against them. If we will not accept what God sends our way and we fight hard against it, we don't come out the other side until we've learned our lesson. Now, sometimes learning lessons, if you're stubborn enough, can take decades. 
you know, we sit there and we, we argue with God and we fight against God and we just don't, re, don't relent. And God says, okay, well, you can keep fighting. You can keep fighting everything I've given you. I've shared with you there was a time when I went six years fighting God on something I knew I shouldn't, shouldn't have been. And when I finally gave up, it was like, okay, thank you. Here you go. Here's, your, here, here, here's the answers. And here's the rewards for having gone through it. I've met people who will fight tooth and nail to do things their way when God is trying to teach them a lesson. And sometimes they never learn it. They fight their entire lifetime against it. And then God says, okay, you know, well, you never got past it. God's a very interesting teacher. He teaches from the old school. You do not move on until you pass the test you're on. Now, in our day and age, when you're in school, they move on whether you're ready for it or not because the class has to be kept up. So you're going to the next section. You don't know how to get this. You don't know the stuff that the next section's built on, but we're going to the next section, which means, of course, you don't learn the next section because you don't have the foundation. God does not do that with us. He will sit there and allow you, if you want to take 50 years to learn the same lesson, he will take 50 years to keep... Keep sending the same test to you with a slightly different twist all the time, but he'll make sure that you get plenty of time to learn the, learn the lesson. But he says, just learn to give in. Turn it over to God. Believe me, I know what it's like to have to fight those battles. I've learned. I still, I still fight him every once in a while, but my fighting with him is a lot shorter duration than it used to be. He, he has beat me up enough over the years to say, okay, God, uh, I know you're going to win, so let me just turn it over to you a lot quicker. We'll never be perfect at it, but it, hopefully you don't, you don't, you're not so stubborn that you're going to fight God for decades. But I've known people who have fought him for decades and turn it over to him, learn to rejoice, learn to say, God, okay, you're teaching me something. I'm ready to learn. Help me learn this lesson quickly. And just turn it over because he's got the promise that he's going to bless. He's going to bless us. He's got it for good. Whatever comes, you know, all things work together for good. And I keep pointing out it's not for my good, but many times it is for our good. Sometimes it's just for his good. And it's always for his good. But sometimes it's for our good as well. And we just wait. And this is what I say. when Sometimes when we go through the hardest point in our life and we get to the other side and we look back, I go, oh, okay, God, that's what you were trying to teach me. That's how, how, what I needed to learn. But it's when we get through. Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil. And that's not even death that he's talking about at that point. It's just the hardships and the trials. He makes me lie down in the midst of my enemies. While we're still in the middle of all these trials, he gives us peace. He gives us comfort. This is, this is something I've read many stories where, the, where they, the hero in the middle of the middle of all the trials, you know, hard times is having a picnic or something. You know, they're just at peace because they're on the right path. That's how God is with us. He will allow us just to be able to love him and move forward with him. In the midst of all the trials... David, when he comes into the field for Goliath, is, 
You know, he's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine speaking against, not Saul, not against David, not against Israel, but the God of Israel? Who is this guy that dares to do this? And that report got, got given back to Saul. You know, David wasn't looking to go fight Goliath at that time. His big question was, we've got a king, we've got warriors here. Why are they letting them defy God? And even more so, why is God letting him defy him? And God used David to be the one that de showed deliverance. God will allow us to be the one to stand up to defend at times for him. Could he do it all by himself? Absolutely. Could he evangelize without us? Absolutely. He's going to in, the, in Revelation. There's the angel that flies around the world, you know, crying out the gospel message. He could have done that from the very beginning. He allows us to be used by him. That is a wonderful thing for us to remember. He allows us to serve him. And you've got to think about that. It, if you really think about that, that's a really special thing. Many people would love to go, well, maybe not our current president, but with our, you know, love to be able to just go to the president and do something for the president or the governor or a king or a queen. Very few people ever get the privilege of doing that because it's a very small amount that can do that. God allows us the privilege of serving him out of the billions and trillions of people in this world and that have ever lived on this world, only a small percentage have stepped forward and been used by God. David is a great example. Joseph. Yeah, I love the story of Joseph. Yeah, gets sent into prison at age 17, or gets sold into slavery at age 17, somewhere between 17 and 30, gets sent to prison on false charges, and, it, and there's never a recording of him being bitter and griping against God. He gets used by God to serve wherever he's at. Huh? It, apparently, it, it doesn't show anything. That doesn't mean that he, you know, I'm not sure that he never in the middle of the night was kind of grumbling to God, even, you know, you know God, what are you doing here? I'm supposed to be, you know. My, my family's supposed to be bowing down to me according to my, you know, the vision you gave me. And here I am in this prison. I'm never going to see them again. I'm, I'm sure in his mind there were times when he did that. But none of them are recorded. Because he is a picture of Jesus. So there could not be this recording in his case. But, you know, he was human. I'm sure there was times when he was in the middle of that dungeon cell, you know, looking, you know, calling out to God and going, God, I don't understand you know, I'm doing the best I can here, but I just don't understand. This isn't, this isn't what you showed me. But God honored him. He never rejected God through all that period of time. And it could have been so easy to reject God. He's hundreds and hundreds of, you know, maybe in a thousand miles away from home, never expecting to go, back, go see his family again. He's a slave. Once you're a slave, you're a slave. And he never expected to see his family. And then worse yet, he got to become a prisoner on a probably life sentence for attempting to, to uh, you know, as the charge goes, a rape an uh, Egyptian woman, a slave trying to rape an Egyptian woman. You know, that probably should have been a death sentence, so there was mercy being shown to him just to be thrown into prison. I kind of think that Potiphar knew that he was, was innocent but couldn't, couldn't do anything but what he did. Uh, he probably understood his wife. 
and, and all of this. But, you know, God uses people. And it's the privilege that he uses us. Because out of all the trillions and trillions of people that have walked on this earth, he's only used a handful. When you think about how, much, how many Christians there are in this world compared to the population of the world, it's very small. And God's privileged us to work for him to build up his kingdom. And that's a great, great, great honor. Most Christians don't look at it as an honor to serve God. They think, oh, God wants me to witness. Boy, that's awfully tough. No, you get to witness. You get to share God's gospel with others. You get to do these things. And we need to change the way we think about this. It's not that I'm serving out of, out of compulsion, but I get to have fun. And I tell you, it's a lot of fun to share and do work for God. It really is. It's, it is just fun to do. Verse 20, bless the Lord... Ye his angels that excel in strength and do his commandments, hearken unto the voice of his word. He's now commanding. This is very interesting. David is commanding the angels to bless the Lord. Now that's their job. But he's commanding them, bless the Lord. You his angels that excel in strength and do his commandments, hearken unto the voice of the Lord. This is so interesting. He's going, don't forget, don't forget your place. Get, you, know, you, keep, you keep worshiping. You keep blessing him. And you notice he says that excel in strength. They are mighty. They are strong. And, you know, we don't understand this about angels, but angels have a huge amount of strength. One angel in, in, the, in the Old Testament killed 180,000, 175,000 soldiers. In one night, one angel. God could wipe this world out in, 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 a, in a moment. All, I mean, he's strong enough to do it without the angels, but he could send the angels to do it. And yet, he doesn't. Why? Because he loves mankind and he wants them to come to him. This is something that is so important. He wants people to turn to him. So much so that he gives us opportunities to make a lot of mistakes. As Christians, he gives us opportunities to make lots of mistakes so that we can follow him in a better way in the future. The world, he gives multitudes of, of opportunity. You know, the old saying that, you give, that they were given enough rope to hang themselves, God does just that. He keeps giving them rope, giving them rope, giving them rope. His whole, whole idea is that finally they will use the rope to climb you know, to turn to him. But if they don't, he's given them enough rope that he goes, hey, I gave you plenty. You hung yourself. You sent yourself to hell by rejecting me. I kept giving you this safety and you, did, you rejected it. And here, David is saying to the angels, bless the Lord. And then in, he goes on, verse 21, bless the Lord, all you his host." His ministers that do his pleasure. He's still talking to the angels. He started out to commanding his soul, if you remember, three weeks ago. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Okay? I remember the first part because it's a song. <laughs> it's a song that we used to sing in church. Uh, 
But now he's now he's commanding the angels. He's going, those of you that are all, all of his host, his army, the angels, and his ministers of his that do his pleasure. So again, two sentences. It's his poetry. We're in the poetry here. So he's paralleling. He's commanding the angels, and he's commanding the angels. Bless the Lord. And in verse 22, bless the Lord all his works in the place of his dominion. Bless the Lord Oh, my soul. So he ends up telling the earth, humans, bless the Lord. And then he goes back one last time, commanding his soul, bless the Lord. We take it for granted that we're going to bless the Lord, but we really need to concentrate on blessing the Lord. We need to concentrate on praising him and worshiping him. And this is one of the things I bring out when, oftentimes, like I did this morning, on some of the songs we sing, they just stand out and say, did we sing this song knowing and thinking about what we were singing or did we sing this song just to sing the words? And too often, and I know in my case, I'm just like everybody else, too often I'm just singing the words to sing the words. A lot of times because I know the words. They're memorized. But sometimes those words will also hit me. The power of those words. The song we sang this morning, Breathe, I'm desperate for you. Are we truly desperate for God? Are we so desperate that we realize that we can't do anything? We can't eat, we can't breathe, we can't witness, we can't do anything without Him. This is the air I breathe, or the breath I, the air I breathe. This is my, your word, my daily word. Do we are we so desperate to God that we realize that he is just like the breath that we need to live? Without him, we can do nothing. David here is saying to the whole world at first, bless the Lord, all the works in all the places of his dominion, his works, his created human beings. And then he finishes with where he started. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And soul is our very inner being. It's one thing to bless him in, our, in, in the outward, you know, to try to make people think we're blessing him. And people can do that really well. They come to church, they sing the songs, they, they're carrying their Bible, they've, they've plastered a smile on their face because all is well, and they're, and they're not going to let anybody know about how miserable life has been for them. And David is saying, bless the Lord, everything in me, Bless the Lord. I want to be able to lift him up. I want him to be lifted up in my life and show that I truly trust that he is in control. And that is important. You know what sometimes, though, when life is difficult to lift out to you and it's lost, it can shudder at you. And someone reminds you, just bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and breathe on me, O oh my God. One of the quotes I heard on the guy that I listened to today, he quoted from C.S. Lewis. If you want some, a, a particular attribute of God, start pretending that you have it, acting like you have it, and then before you know it, you have it. And this is a true statement. You want to learn to pray, for, pray just start praying. Whether you think you're good at it or not, keep praying, and before long, you're pretty good at praying. You want to learn to forgive people? Start forgiving people. Just, just forgive them. You may not even feel that you're forgiving them, but just forgive them and get it out of your mind. 
You want, you want to move, you want to learn to witness to people, just pretend that you're good at it for a while and just open up and start doing it. Things happen. If we do not practice things, we do not get better at it. And this is true if anybody's ever played a sport, on a team especially, the team practices and practices and practices and practices things, not because you don't know how to do it, but to make it natural that when you're in the game, you no longer think about it. You just do it. This is what it's like to walk with God. How do we start learning to witness? We start doing it. Will we be good at it when we first start witnessing? No. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. We're going to twist, you know, fall over our words. But you start practicing it, and you keep doing it. And before you know it, it becomes nat more natural to do, and it becomes easier to do. We get into reading our Bible. If you've ever started the process, and remember when you started the process of reading your Bible every day, those first weeks were hard. All kinds of things came up to get in the way. But after a while, it's like, okay, I just do it. I'm going to start my day, and this is how I'm starting my day. And it becomes natural. Very important for us to understand, the spiritual walk is a spiritual walk in life. We grow. We do not start at the top. Everybody wants to start at the top. They want to be the perfect teacher. They want to be the perfect evangelist. They want to be, they're not willing to go through and do the steps that it takes to get there. And we also see this in our world now, nowadays. Our world is getting to the place where no, none of the kids want to uh, slowly get to where their parents are. They want the, they want the, the big house and the cars and the, the $100,000 uh, salary to start. They don't, they don't want to build themselves up to the top. They want to go, well, mom and dad have it. I deserve it. <laughs> and they think, you know, but it took a long time to get there. There was a lot of learning that got involved in getting there. And the world right now is impatient. Unfortunately, we as Christians are impatient. We want this perfect spiritual walk yesterday, not even in the future. And God's saying, oh, you've got to grow. Most of what we go through, and we look at people that we respect with Christ, if we look at them when they were 30 years ago, we probably wouldn't want to know them. You know, what kind of, we'd be saying, what kind of Christian were you? But they, they took, they had to learn. They had to fall down flat on their face. They had to make mistakes. I've dealt with teachers trying to learn to teach in the Bible studies in Sunday schools. You did, a, you did a fine job. This is where you can improve. And you know what? After, after a few years, they're doing a very good job. But we need to learn to allow God to grow us because we start out as babies in the spiritual world. We do not start out as giants in the spiritual world. If we are lucky and we follow God and we follow God and we allow him to work, we might end up as a spiritual giant I'm not there yet. I'd like to get there someday. But there, it takes time and it takes learning and it takes growth. But God said, will allow us, if we work, allow him to work through us, he'll get us there. But we need to learn and we need to be aware. We're going to start out just rolling from our belly to our back and then our back to our belly. We're going to get up on our knees and try to rock back and forth before we can even crawl. All of those steps are part of the spiritual life. But it, we get saved as adults and we go, 
God, I, I don't want to crawl. I want to, I want to fly like an eagle. And God says, well, you need to learn to crawl before you can fly. You need to learn to walk before you can fly. You need to learn to walk before you can run. You need to, you know, but we just want to shortcut it and say, God, I want all the, all the information downloaded into my brain and I'm going to be a spiritual giant tomorrow. Flying around and being, being in charge of everything. I dream of flying. But God, God is telling us, be patient. And God has this wonderful aspect of patience. He has a long-term plan for our life, which is our entire life. And he says, I can use you as much when you're 60, 70, 80, 90, as I could have when you were 20. Matter of fact, he might even be able to use us more when we've grown and matured in, in physical and spiritual growth. And he says, I'm going to use you. And I want to challenge you to think about this. Look at most of the people in, their bi in the Bible, and most of them were used in their older age, not their younger age. There are exceptions. Okay, there, you know, Joseph, who we talked about, got used at 30. Daniel and his friends got used as teenagers. But oftentimes when we look at it, Noah wasn't called till he was 600. Two-thirds of his life was gone already. And then God used him. Abraham got called in his 50s and walked, walked away. If you look at many of the great biographies of Christians, many of them didn't even get started in their real strength of walk until they were much older. Why? God had to mature them. He had to mature them spiritually. And this is very important for us to keep in mind. God is patient. We need to show just as much patience and he will allow us to be used. Many, even in the business world, many of the great successes in businesses came in the later years of their life when they had matured enough to be able to make wise decisions. Many of them lost, you know, made a business, lost a business, made a business, lost a business all through their lifetime. And then when they were older, they got their successful business that, that stayed, stayed in existence. God is patient with us. We need to show that patience. We also need to show that patience with new Christians. How many times do we get impatience with young Christians because they're not growing fast enough in our, in our mind? They need time to learn. They need time to have as much patience as God had us with us when we were young and making all the, all the mistakes spiritually. <laughs> and it's an amazing thing to me that a lot of pressure is put on somebody when they're young in Christ to serve God when they're the least able to serve him because they haven't grown spiritually. And then we get older and we retire and we, just, and we retire not just from the physical world but from God as well. And I've seen that over and over with people, well, I'm just leaving it to the young people now. Well, the young people need to be directed. Yes, there's a point where we leave it to the young people to do the work, but then we are to mentor them and to give them advice and to watch what they're doing and help them improve. Not just leave and, and, you know, it's all yours now. Good luck. Go ahead and make the same mistakes I made all my life and, and, and learn the hard way. But God is saying we need, to, we need to be worked on. We need to grow. He will do it, but he also uses other Christians to help. And this is where we as people that are older in Christ come into their life and say, let me show you. Let me show you how to do this better. 
Let me show you how you can teach this better. Let me show you how you can witness better. Let me show you how what I've learned about prayer and witnessing and be able to grow forward on that. And we're going to end at that point. You have something? You, all right. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that you love us so much, that you care for us, that you are merciful and gracious, that you love us, and that you're looking to help us grow. Lord, we ask that if anybody doesn't know you, that they will recognize that they're a sinner and that they deserve punishment and they will accept you in, as their Lord and Savior and be able to seek out help to grow in you. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.